Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 496. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on the Evergreen Network, please go and visit evergreenpodcast.com. So this week's interview is with John Andrews. John is a career shopper marketer, entrepreneur and intrapreneur, having worked for the likes of Newell Rubbermaid, Haynes, and on the retail side, Walmart, where he built Walmart 11 Moms. He's also founded and exited several startups. He's co-author, along with my friend Ted Rubin, of a book entitled Retail Relevancy, How Brands and Retailers Will Connect in a Post-Physical World. In this interview with John, we discuss his career, the future of retail, who holds the power between brands and retailers, whether brands should own their channel, a la Nike or Apple, and solving some of the biggest retail challenges looming. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. Please, if you have a moment, go over and drop in a rating and review. And certainly don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. John Andrews, friend of Ted Rubin, co-author with Ted, retail relevancy, specialist in retail. My goodness, um, I'm looking forward to chatting with you about the future of retail. In your own words, John, how would you like to describe yourself? Well, I am a uh, path follower and a path maker. So I have uh, been fortunate enough to follow some pretty cool paths and to make some pretty cool paths. So uh, I am a, I'm a, I'm a path, path person. As long as it's not a pathogen or a pathologist. <laughs> Had a couple of those, but no, no, I try to stay away. All right. So, John, you have had an enormous career in retail with so many big name brands and retailers. Talk us through your your journey to where you are today. Sure. Um, my uh, it, it, the, the abridged version, which is always nice, is, uh, you know, I was a non-traditional kind of pathway here in the States anyway. Um, I did not go to college out of, out of high school, which uh, most people who are you know, going to do that typically do. Uh, but I worked for a chain called Domino's Pizza, which you, you may know or may not My know. My son is deeply in, indebted to you. He loves Domino's Pizza. Well, I mean, Domino's is great, right? He doesn't love Domino's. Um, it, you know, I had the opportunity, um, I was delivering pizza to them when I was in high school and had the opportunity to... Um, uh, get into their management training program. And if you went through it and you managed a store for a couple of years, you could invest like $25,000 and you could get a, fran a franchise. So I'm like, well, that sounds pretty cool. Well, you know, I'll do that. And I really enjoyed the work. It took me out of my, uh, I grew up in North Carolina and it, it uh, took me away from my small town upbringing to the coast of Maine, uh, where I ran some dominoes. And um, what I really took away from that experience, though, was we had a binder about this thick that was all of the marketing stuff, right? Because a lot of my pay was based on a bonus, and we used to do all kinds of of, of uh, kind of tactical marketing things from hang door hanging to, you know, uh, coupons, coupons and 
yeah, bounce checks that we would do on box tops to joining the local chamber of commerce to whatever, right? Uh, so, so I really was fascinated. There were a couple pages that really delved into how you angle the logo, right? Twenty-three hmm. degree angle and the colors. You know, process blue is Domino's blue, right? And 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 really focus. I'm like, wow, you know. There is someone's job who is to think about these things, right? And it's it's a classic brand, uh, you know, architecture marketing job, right? How do how do we look consistent? How do we how do we communicate? The brand charter, right? And I think at some point I decided, well, you know, I might like to do something other than make pizzas my whole life. Although I I miss uh, I miss my pizza days greatly, uh, so I returned to 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 college with the intent of getting into the advertising business. And I had a wonderful, uh, uh, you know, uh, student services uh, career coach who said, well, well, so you want to move to New York and make $25,000 a year and live in an apartment with eight people. Uh, so you can work in a sexy job in Madison Avenue, you know, and get coffee for people. I said, yeah, uh, no, no, that's not what I want to do at all. Uh, she said, well, what do you think about brand management? I'm like, ooh, what's brand management? She said, well, it's this job where you do these things, where you manage all of the things for brand. And, and you think about how does it brand resonate with, with people? And I said, oh, yeah, I want to do that. She says, well, great. You're going to need a graduate degree. So I went directly to graduate school, got a job. I mean, got a uh, got a degree, uh, a business degree. And um I was at a school called Wake Forest and went to Salem, North Carolina, which was the home of R.J. Reynolds, the tobacco company, and to most of Haynes brands. So if you think about brands like Champion and Haynes and Bally and Legs and whatever. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. So they recruit a lot of people. I went to work for them and uh, found myself working on a food drug mass brand called Legs that... Um, uh, was a uh, you know you know big at it. it places like Walmart. It was actually growing quite rapidly at Walmart. And so I really learned kind of that core, you know, consumer product, good manufacturing, you know, brand, brand marketing. And, and the I relationship love, and the relationship with the big old retailer. Relationship. Yeah. Cause I mean, within a month of that job, I was over in Bentonville, Arkansas, working with the buyer on a new program. And I, so I got to, you know, I got to see that piece of it and, and uh, I was knee deep in um, data. Uh, I was not a pantyhose user. So I needed to really understand the user. I, I actually think, I, you know, I, I tell people this a lot and, and, and you know, it's not a joke. It's uh, probably the best job I could have ever had was being a, a product, a brand person for a product that I can't use. Because one of the, the inherent weaknesses of marketing of any type is, um, the world does not look like you. The world does not act like you. It does not think like you. And too many marketers, I think, including me, get stuck in the, oh, well, here's how I do it. So that, that must be the way we do it. And that's nice. But, um, you know, data is awesome, especially now when, you know, I'm, I've, uh, in the, the, one of the many windows I have behind this screen, uh, I've got three Google Analytics screens up for brands that I, I work with and think about. And, and so I can literally see what somebody's doing on our website right now, right? What are they doing? What pages are they going to? You know, get, get just get information. And man, I just loved it. 
uh, got the opportunity to go from there to a digital startup called Picture Vision that was digitizing photos and putting them on the web and making the picture CDs you might remember. Uh, we made a machine that did that. Uh, AOL, uh, AOL was part of our owner. We we were the back end of American Lines. You've got picture service. So I kind of got some digital uh, chops doing that. And um, and then I went back to a brand and, a, and more of a scale up brand. So a, a brand uh, uh, called M Plus or a brand company called M Plus that had a bunch of sub brands uh, in the footwear accessory space. And uh, I really learned how to grow new brands to make brands for specific retail channels. And gosh, I just really loved it, you know, and, and I was there for about four years. We, we went from about 25 million in revenue to about hundred million in revenue, uh, made some equity money, which was nice uh, as part of that and, and learned that, that that was something that I enjoyed. <laughs> you know, So uh, let's, let's do that more. Uh, and then I got recruited by Walmart. So I moved to uh, Bentonville, Arkansas. And uh, or I, I lived in Fayetteville, which is a college town just south of there. Um, and with my wife, and she also got recruited by Walmart because they recruit trailing spouses uh, pretty aggressively. Because it's, uh, as you can imagine, it wasn't easy at that time to get people to move to the middle of the country. Sure, uh, isolated in a, in a small town. It, it's actually quite an amazing place today. Um, and, but I really loved it. And I went to Walmart on the dry grocery team and wanted to re, you know, I, I loved that I had the opportunity to work there, but I knew I would get to do something different, right? That there would be all kinds of things I could do. So I just wanted to get there, get in a role. As part of that, you can see the grocery behind me. I, I was responsible for a team that helped put together a lot of cooperative marketing programs. So you think when you walk into a Walmart or an ASDA or whatever, and they have, you know, the Christmas promotion. There's all the stuff. They've got the advertising and everything to go with. That's what our team did. And we would work with our supplier community, the Procter and & Gamble's and, and uh, you know, Kellogg's and Pepsi's of the world um, to build collective programs that we would use for media together and, and, and in-store activation as well. And I really, it was a great part of retail to learn because it is the promotional part of the four P's, you know, so I kind of knew product a little bit. Uh, yeah. You know, I knew Pipeline. Uh, uh, product place, uh, 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 promotion and price, right? Mm -hmm. So promotion is kind of generic for marketing and, 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 but, but especially in, in the retail world, a lot of promotion is how are things, uh, merchandised in the store, you know, how are things uh, 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 done on temporary displays, which stick out at you. So I, I really learned that shopper marketing space very well. Um, and then one day I uh, had a colleague um, approach me and say, hey, I'd like you to help uh, build this emerging media team I'm working on. I said, awesome. This was about 2008. I said, awesome. What is emerging media? I said, that would be a great place to start. He said, well, you know, everything beyond, you know, banner ads, you know, this Facebook thing and this thing called Twitter and, you know, other things. I said, awesome. He says, you know about Twitter and stuff, right? I'm like, if you mean that I know that there's this thing called Twitter, then yes, I know all about it. So uh, it was great. We got her in the hood of it and we built a, um, as part of that, I began to Google things like saving money and saving money on groceries and stuff like that. And, and Walmart was nowhere to be found. Right, because Walmart did at that time not make content about saving money. Right, um, it made 
ads <laughs> about its prices, uh, you know. And but what what did pop up was lots and lots of content from a lot of influencers, and, and I, I, they weren't called influencers then; they were bloggers, uh, and more specifically, a genre of bloggers called mom bloggers. And they were creating money about frugal living and couponing and lifestyles. And so I began to reach out to them. I said, "Hey, tell me what you're doing because it, it really Google really likes it, and I, I really want to understand it." And we formed a group of these folks and built a um, built a platform uh, for cooperative media called uh, Walmart Eleven Moms, and we packaged their their content into a media buy, and our suppliers bought it. And, Here's what I found. And it was uh, it was just like you would. Um, have done in any other form of cooperative media. It just happened to be using people as media. You know, when now what's thought of as influencer marketing. And the um, number 11 was just because you had 11 of them? We had 11 of them and then we got 12 and they're like, well, do we change our name? And I said, no, you know, because I, I, like, um, I like words that you can um, index for and own on Google. I think a lot about, uh, about Google. I think Google kind of controls our life. Yeah. Uh, like it or not, uh, but that's how it is. So use it. Um, Walmart Moms was actually a, a blogger's name, so we're going to take that. And by by the way, that would have meant nothing to anyone. But but Eleven Moms, kind of you know, it's it's a cognitive dissonance. It's like, oh wait, what is that? You know. So so that was the genesis behind the name. And actually, my boss told me not to name it that. He says name it Walmart Moms. And I'm like, I'm not going to name it the, the name of a existing bloggers space because there were, could be nothing worse for Walmart than to do that <laughs> and, and to alienate, you know, all the mom bloggers are just working hard out there, you know. So anyway, uh, we did that. Uh, it was it was wildly successful. That that program ran for about 10 years, um, way past my my uh, stewardship of starting it. And we took that model and founded a company called Collective Bias. Oh, and at that time, you met a, uh, I met a friend of ours that you know, Ted Rubin, uh, who was doing basically the same thing for a, um, a, a scale-up brand called Elf Cosmetics in, in the cosmetic space. Which I know. We had a, a wonderful blogger that we both work with named Katya Presnell, um, who um, we still work with. Um, connected us. Uh, we became friends. We began to collaborate on things. And we met each other for the first time at South by Southwest Interactive in Austin, Texas, in uh, in the spring of 2008. Um, fast forward a little bit, uh, we took that model and founded a company called Collective Bias. We had some great, great people to help us think about how we create um, people always thought of us and still think of, uh, of that company as a uh, influencer marketing company. It was not. It was a media company that produced content using people. Um, yeah. That's it. Which is what <laughs> influencer marketing is, really, isn't it? Uh, it? It is, but typically it is not packaged and sold in that manner. It, it, it was very important. It, it was a very important distinction that I, that I used to really say to people. I'm like, we don't sell, like, we don't sell, like, we don't, work with influencers to bring influencers in into your brand. We create integrated campaigns focused on primarily on retail, you know, integrated retail with groups of influencers. And we never allow brands to pick the influencers in their group. 
Um, we just didn't, we just had a different philosophy that was, I'm selling you a media buy. So if you bought at that time, print was still pretty, you know, relatively big. Um, but, but people understood, marketers understood media buys. So if they spent $100,000 on a magazine ad in Glamour, they knew what they were getting, right? They were getting content, they were getting reach, they were getting whatever. And, and they weren't even getting content because their agency would then make their content and they'd charge them another charge for that. So we sold a package media buy that used influencers. And, and, and then we um, supported that content with cross syndication among those influencers. But those influencers were always picked via a hand-raising method of people who we would present the, the opportunity, the mission or whatever, and, and they would choose. So it was always something that was relevant for their brand. And I think that was a really important point of difference in the way influencer marketing is primarily done today is people pick people who they, they want, you know, they think are whatever. And, and I'm like, yeah, but, but if, my brand and content is not relevant for their audience, then why would they do it? Well, right? of course, there's still the check. The size of the check can help deviate well, people's understanding of what actually fits. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it does. And, and then now you add on the analytics tools that we have. Um, you know, I, I mean, I I get the idea of spending, you know, hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars on influencer content. But um, I would challenge anyone to show me where those investments actually pay a positive ROAS, right? Uh, I knew that when we used 30 influencers to create a collective bias campaign, we created a, 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 an amount which we always exceeded of reach, of engagement, and some kind of action. So, so again, we were, we were not just thinking about, yay, we're going to go get you some amazing uh, well-known YouTuber. Um, yeah, you know, that's nice, but I would bet 199 times out of a hundred, those investments do not pay off other than brand exposure, which is fine. Uh, but I don't, I don't see a pathway to make those ROAS investments. And, and now everything is measurable. So if I run an influencer campaign, I can see the impact that it has on the volume and activity of my brand, not only just from a conversational standpoint, but from a, a site traffic sales and, and impact standpoint, right? Can I just uh, break in there? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, the, the ideas of data, the measurability is so obviously necessary, especially yeah. for the larger companies. But it feels like it's a little bit at, at a countervailing force with the idea of developing relationships and storytelling and trust. Mm -hmm. Because it, it, it the, the, the former, just data tells, you can tell any story you want with any data. Mm -hmm. there's, there's an issue of confidentiality in order to get the data. Sure. And the way... Often, I think retailers or brands are, are the bigger ones. They default to data as opposed to the hard work that comes with the messy idea of building relationships. Mm -hmm. How do you how do you dot those T's and cross those I's? 
Yeah, I would tend to agree with you because I, I think what has happened is the pendulum has swung so far in the transactional data side that it actually destroys relationships. So, um, you, you know, you, you're your inbox and tech streams are are, um, are are no no stranger to brands that are just relentlessly uh, communicating to you. You know, some brand. I I still am amazed when I get brands that email me every day, and and I can't imagine that there is not some. Well, the problem is there's not a brand person in the in the on that business that is asking the question of hey, uh, why are we doing this, right? There is a, a segmented group that is responsible for um, uh, so much traffic and, and so much activity that it, it, that's what they're graded on. But they're not doing the math of you're really destroying your credibility with a brand. So I'm, I'm on site uh, right now at a company called Osnap. Uh, Osnap is a, a, a scale-up brand. It, it makes a, a, a product, a phone grip product. I don't know if you can see it because of my background. I got to hold it just yeah, right. Yeah, don't worry. Uh, it makes a phone grip product that's a competitor to PopSocket. Um, our team here uses data relentlessly, but also thinks about the customer relentlessly. So they also use data to look at how many times they've communicated with a customer and how much is too much and how much is disrespectful of that customer's time and energy. And then thinking about, you know, what, what would they like and what would they do from a new brand? So they communicate with the customer when they have new news, when they have brand positioning uh you know things that things that are you know build brand affinity to your point help build relationships but not just to sell shit and, and i think that i think that is I, I think that's what you're getting at unless i'm wrong correct me but but yeah data can can be a uh a, a, a very bad thing too when you I, th I believe used incorrectly and i and i think for many cases it, it could be argued that that it is used incorrectly well, Ted Rubin, uh, the man who will talk about return on relationships, it's it's a messier process. It's harder. If you are strictly looking at the return on investment all the time, it seems like that's bound to cut short the ability to deal with the messiness, build a relationship that might not be worthwhile today, but will bear fruit eventually but not in a way that you're necessarily expecting because just because the person may not be able to buy your items for one reason sure. or another, but they might influence others. And, and, and we just don't seem to track that. And to your point in the book about how artificial intelligence is, is certainly not very intelligent. It seems to mm -hmm. be more good in the artificial elements. Uh, that's to say, you know, handling mass work, and doing if this then that but not learning enough about john andrew's particular penchant and he's happy to receive one email every seven days and someone who looks like him but in the same category but has a different behavior set would prefer one email every two months sure sure and the, the ability to splice using ai is difficult yeah, it, it's coming. Now, I I, I will say, uh, and I teach um, integrated brand promotion and advertising um, here at North Carolina State University, and actually have my students this semester writing some of their work using AI writers, mm -hmm. uh, because I think that, um, one, they've gotten 
a lot better. Uh, the, 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 the speed of growth of recursiveness of the systems learning from themselves uh, is, is pretty amazing right now. And what you just described is happening in the, uh, the, the automation side. So, so it is actually building a more human-like um, uh, kind of approach to, to building, to your, to, your, to your point. It's not there yet, but um, I have been pretty amazed over the past. I think COVID must have been a great time for a bunch of developers to just be under the hood and, and fix but things that maybe weren't I, working. I had uh, my friend Kevin Ryan on the show talking about at the time that guilt.com was around and mm -hmm. how they used AI to develop relationships. And they had 2000 differentiated email segments yeah. where each email was d done differently. And, and he talked about how many people that are required, but it really it actually, the issue is it requires a specific type of mindset because mm -hmm. you, you're, when you're developing relationships, it's not just about the numbers. No, of and, course. And leaning in with intuitions and and accepting the messinesses of it, and maybe even having feedback and interactions with people, and and uh, and then then the whole issue of data. How yep. how how can I get you, John Andrews, to supply me with intimate personal data, which helps me really understand what you want sure. to personalize to. Yeah, no, you're right. And and Ted says this a lot. I'm I'm a big believer in, in this this as well, is is um is and I think it's that same thing, is like you cannot automate relationships. You can't automate all the things. You need to automate the things that give you time, that the things that that can be done. Writing uh is quickly being automated. And I have a lot of writers that are friends of mine who are like, well, this this is terrible. And I'm like, yeah, it, it it so so I get it. I don't think it's terrible though, because I think it gives you more time to think about ideas and bring them to life in in ways. And, and um, you know, we use a, we use a couple of tools. We use a product called um, uh, uh, Article Forge that can write a pretty decent uh, you know article from scratch. Um, and then we edit, we human edit, right? We we give Article Forge the original ideas, we human edit. And then we use a, a sister tool called Word.ai. And Word.ai rewrites entire articles for approachability and readability from what it knows people engage with, right? Again, you can't just, what, what will happen is people will just use the tools and, and be like, hey, we're pop out articles like crazy. That's not the point. The point is I can become a more productive marketer and spend more time thinking about how do I build those real relationships than cranking out 10 articles that I need for different platforms or different sources, right? And I just think, um, again, the, the part, of, part of our job is... Um, is to learn. I had a wonderful, Ted and I have a wonderful friend named Dave Henry. And Dave Henry uh, has spent 40 years in the retail business. He's, he's, uh, he, he, he knows where all the bodies are buried. He knows, you know, he created the first loyalty program uh, uh, from, at, a, at a chain called Star Markets, which is now, which is in Northeast United States, now part of, uh, of uh, uh, Albertsons. 
But uh, he and some of his marketing, he was on the marketing team there. They were sitting around and American Airlines was, you know, kind of doing its thing with its loyalty program. And they're like, we should do that for our customers, right? So, so they said, we, we should build something that, that rewards our regular shoppers and thinks about the things that they buy. But they were driving that system. And they worked with a technologist to be able to integrate 10 items that they could offer discounts on. And all you had to do was come in and buy those items and you had your card and it, it, it interacted. I mean, you think about that back in the, like, like the uh, early eighties, that wasn't easy to do. So to your point, it's like thinking about what's important to our customers. How can we show them uh, some, some empathy and connection in a way using technology but but still be reflective of of the kind of relationship we're trying to build with them. But he spoke to my class yesterday, and it was interesting because he showed all these old, you know, circular ads and and things. You know, I think there were can of tuna was eighteen cents. You know, in in the first ad that he he showed or something. And and you know, I, I could see my students thinking about, well, I mean, they don't read newspapers. They don't. You know, this is this is foreign to them. And I said, you know, at the end of class, I said, you know. Dave showed a lot of old stuff, right? Old kind of kind of things. But if you'll notice the things that we've talked about all semester, none of the principles have changed at all, right? It was because he talked about how do I understand my core customer? How do I understand their wants and needs? How do, how do I understand um, how I connect with them in a way that uh, that is that is relevant and breaks through the clutter of of their you know that he he had really um, he and his team uh, used lots of of really bad but really kind of funny puns in their ads right you know and 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 it was their but but they developed a brand personality that was recognizable and repeatable and consistent and and I thought wow, you know, um, this this was a really cool juxtaposition to all of the technology and new kind of brands that I have and that are literally trying to do the exact same thing, you know. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast. So... I like to get into the what the future of retail is. As you and I were just standing before, it's a very fast-moving mm-hmm. space. COVID changed a lot, acceleration, and so on. And you, you quote uh, Doug McMillan, the Walmart CEO, says, "We will compete with technology, but we will win with people." Yeah. And fundamentally, uh, of course, e-commerce is more or less a computer interface although there is things like chat and customer service and delivery where usually unless we get the drones uh, there's still people involved yeah but great resignation motivation to work to get into a car commute to the workplace be a smiley service-oriented customer-facing person 
who is working in an organization where margins are, are light, yep. where treatment of employees isn't great, where the, 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 the major purpose of retail doesn't seem to be hugely fulfilling. Yeah. How, do, how, does, how does retail get through that conundrum given the, the trends of the employee side of things as opposed to the yeah. customer side? Um, wow, that's a great question. Um, I'm not sure anyone has that figured out. And it is a, to your point, it is a, an amazingly hard problem today, right? Working in a, in a retail job, being it on a, on a store floor or on a warehouse floor is not something I think many people, you know, not only don't aspire to, but don't, they don't want to do it. Right. It, you know, they don't they don't want to uh, it, it, it's just a it, it's not a very it, it's a thankless job. Um, technology is going to take a lot of those roles. I mean, it, it just is. And sure. And, you know, in the and in the book, we talk about and that's probably a good thing in, in many cases, because we talk about what's the goal of retail. Right. It's fulfillment of wants and needs, you know, and and we get it. I still like, you know, I get I get in, into uh, some esoteric conversations with people about, you know, stores versus e-com versus, and I said, why, why are we talking about this? You know, who cares, right? Like, um, the idea is, what does the shopper want? What do they need, right? It's not about you. It's not about your store. It's not about your model. It's, it's whatever. It's, it's what does the, what does the shopper need, you know? Um, and I think that, you're going to see an evolution. Econ, no one makes money in e-com today, including Amazon. I mean, they, they don't. Um, Amazon is very clear about the fact that it, it does it does not make money. At Walmart loses last last time I saw the the latest numbers, and they're not releasing everything. They lose about a billion dollars a year on their their e-com business, including including pickup because it's expensive, and to compete for share retailers uh, signaled to shoppers that it was no cost, but it is a cost. It, it, it's uh, roughly to deliver a bag of groceries to, you know, deliver groceries to your home. It's about $18 in, in total cost if you, you factor in all the cost. Well, most consumers are not going to pay that, but most consumers want that. So, you know, first of all, you're going to have to solve the that challenge. And I, I think technology will do some of that, but I, I also think there'll be other things. But what you're seeing is an unbundling. Um, you know, Amazon had uh, horrible numbers today. They, I think, their stock lost about twenty percent of its value this morning. Um, they, uh, they are going after logistics really hard right now. Uh, they want to replace. They want to have their own logistics, and I think uh, for two reasons. Um, Amazon makes money from AWS, from media. Uh, and and everybody's obsessed with retail media, and I'm like, yeah, but but Amazon's a search engine for products, and you're not. In the, you know, Walmart might have a little search. Everyone else is none. Uh, Google has it. Um, they make money from from subscriptions, and they make money from media, right? Uh, I mean, from from uh, their their extended media services like. Uh, 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 Prime. Prime. Prime video. Yeah, yeah, right. So, so you know, 
I think it's really looking at logistics as to your point, how do they keep that connection with the customer, right? Because if UPS or FedEx or USPS or whoever or someone else is delivering your stuff, that's not a great, that, that's not a great, uh, uh, you have zero connection with the customer. It's even worse. Think about if you're a retailer that's using Instacart in the middle of your, your, uh, your, your purchase. So now Instacart is between you and the customer. Um, I believe the future of a retailer is going to be uh, somewhat a, 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 an entity that uh, fulfills your wants and needs wherever and whenever you want them. And I think it's a fundamental change when we think about this thing behind me, you know, the, the, the store a shelf. retail shelf, yeah, a retail shelf, but it's going to be a retail shelf for plenty of people for many years to come. But, but um, think about, uh, think about, you know, the rise of direct to consumer brands and, and a lot of them get, get uh, uh, you know, that industry gets a lot of uh, shade right now. Cause I think people don't fundamentally understand that. Yes, there are a bunch of consumer brands, uh, direct to consumer brands that are struggling. Warby Parker and you know has never made a profit. Uh, Allbirds, all these guys. Well, but they're struggling because they were misallocated in size from the beginning, and they got too much investment and needed to pay that investment back. Versus thinking about how big is a glasses, you know, a, a direct to consumer glasses brand. How big is a is an ugly shoe? Sorry, all birds, but your shoes are ugly. Uh, super comfortable. Um, you know, how big are these brands? Well, they they misallocated size investment, and that that'll work us out. But I, you know, there are plenty of brands of you know what what's wrong with a hundred million dollar brand? What's wrong with a, a you know a five hundred million dollar brand? There's plenty of brands that can that can be that size, and have this personal relationship with their their customer, or become a bigger part of a, a portfolio of brands like that. Um, Retailers, I think, uh, some big retailers are going to survive. I think most others do not, simply because the economics are not going to not going to support it. And and I and I think other people become retailers that are now mainly seen as brands. Nike is a retailer. You know, Nike now sells more than fifty um, percent uh, of its total volume direct to consumer. It has reduced its reliance on on other retailers. You know, it's going to stop selling to Foot Locker, I think, by the end of the year or next year. Um, you know, it's only got three or four non, you know, people not named Nike that that are are. And, and I think that's the future of some brands. And then I think the aggregate is going to be, you know, in in the in the United States, it's going to be Walmart. And uh, I, I think Target will get subsumed at some point, and uh, Amazon. And, and so, then I think, hey, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, I just wanted to break in on, on the Amazon yeah. story. So my perspective on them is that they're not making a profit because they can not make a profit on retail, on e-commerce, because that's what they've chosen to do. They have enough margin elsewhere that they can subsidize the situation in e-commerce until they become so big that then there's the only player around. And then I'm sure that especially once Bezos has to retire or his his shares are sold, then we're back to the strict Wall Street approach where we're gonna be looking for money and where's your margin and people here have to drive up margins. But in in the case of getting bigger and the the, the ones in the middle getting squeezed out, we still haven't solved the people problem that Macmillan talks about because yep. just because you're bigger doesn't sound like it's going to make you better people 
Yeah, I, I think I, I think you're right. I mean, Walmart lives in a unique position because it also has the scale to be able to make some other choices. It, it, you know, it, it's got pricing pricing power probably even better than than, than Amazon's. All I think that's that's going away. Um, but it it you know its strength if it looks at competitive it, it, its competition is it has lots of humans that can interact with other humans in its stores and, and uh, eventually as potential its own delivery uh, uh, platform. Um, I think technology is going to take a lot of people out of the process in, in the near term, um, mainly because it has to now. It, it was able to at some place before, if you think about self-check and you know some other technologies that were coming up, um, you're just not going to have not not in the not in the United States anyway. You know, in, until we do something about immigration, we're not going to have people to fill the roles, and and that's just a, a reality that I think the entire industry and, and it's not the only one too. You know, the other mm. the other part is hospitality. Yeah, it is you got a lot of competition for those roles. Yeah, you know, so so if if uh all of a sudden um you know, you know McDonald's is paying $20 an hour, uh you know, that well that's a competitor for somebody that was in your you know, your role. I I do think though um that those two competitions will will be will be interesting, but the the I believe I, I tell this story to Ted a lot. I said, "You know what? So you know Amazon was in .com, .com one, right? So you remember pets.com and blah, blah, blah. And, and they, everybody thought that they would die as well. And I think uh, Bezos went home uh, one day from work and he said, wow, this is terrible. Uh, we can't make money at e-com. We're going to go out of business, right? And I think that night uh, he was hanging out in uh, uh, one of the uh, cut rate airlines that was launching and there was a news story on it and where they unbundled everything and said, hey, you know, you can have the lowest, you know, airline ticket you want, but, uh, you know, if you, um, if you want to check a bag, uh, you know, if you want to, if you want to use the the laboratory, you know, whatever, you got to pay, you know, wasn't that something that, uh, what you call it, tried one time, um, but, but, I, and I think he, he plugged the business, he said, oh, retail is the, the sum of its components, right, so he said, I don't, I don't have to make money at, um, at selling the thing. I gotta, I gotta figure out how to, how to unbundle all the rest of the stuff. And, and luckily cloud grew and he had made a big bet on that. So that funded a lot of things. And then, uh, their search got really good in media, you know, they'll, they'll make 30, 35 billion this year in media. Those are 80 margin dollars, 80 you know, versus versus selling stuff, which is 30 margin dollars, you know, for, uh, you know, blended mix. Good day. Um, it's a big difference. Certainly and, it and, is. And, and then his subscription business, you know, is is what is a, re, you know, what is a retailer, right? I mean, a retailer is a, is a place where I get movies from. Yeah, of course. We used to get DVDs from Walmart, right? Why wouldn't I get, why wouldn't I watch, yeah, Blockbuster. Why wouldn't I watch my movies on Prime? Got it. Okay. I mean, and I think he just looked at all of these pieces and lucky, good, whatever. We can, we can all debate you know, how we got there, but, but I think he realized the future of a retailer is 
I've got to unbundle the process and figure out how to take costs. And I think that's why they're going after logistics so hard. And if you look mm. at, at um, other models, you know, we we tend to be very um, U.S. centric here. You know, 4% of the world's population, we we, we couldn't be wrong, right? Um, uh, JD.com, uh, you know, they uh, have a- The Chinese- yeah, they have a completely um, uh, vertical model, right? You, you know, and and I think when you watch those and when you see the success now of brands like um, uh, Sheen, you know, Sheen is is putting physical retail now in the United States. Um, ask any teenage girl here about Sheen. It's, it's far and away their favorite, uh, you know, fast fashion brand. Um, uh, Timu, uh, which is an app, uh, part of Pinduo Duo. Um, they are thinking very much that way in, in the fact that I am, I am the complete, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, vertical uh, of retail, you know, from, from, from endpoint to endpoint. And, that, and that's a very different thinking than I think most, most of our models today. Well, the, it, Amazon the Chinese, yeah, the Chinese model is, is fascinating, but not so easy to translate into occidental <laughs> mores and and uh, reg legislation and so on yeah sure i want to spend the last piece piece of time together john talking about the brands because different from retailers although one could argue that a retailer should have a brand call it walmart yeah. tesco and, and such but brands, and so you, you mentioned Nike uh, previously and, and Apple, which are two, I would say, standout organizations in terms of the way they have integrated and created their own retail space. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the avalanche of new technologies, the metaverse and AR, VR, and so on, yeah. how how do you see brands making it through and you talk about conversational marketing you mm -hmm. talk about building relationships do, do you feel like brands should own their customer should own their points of sale or if not how do they do provide personalized information and relationship marketing when the material the data is actually owned by the retailer yeah, uh, it, it's a great question, and and that's always the friction, right? Is who owns who owns the shopper, right? Um, I think the more connected you can be to the shopper as a brand, the better. Um, you, you know, not having someone between you and that person uh, is ultimately how you build a great brand. You know, Apple, uh, where Apple is sold, that is not. It is not control. It controls the experience still. You know, if you walk into a Best Buy, it's an Apple controlled experience. Um, in many cases, it's either Apple contracted or or um, third party contracted Apple employees, not Best Buy employees selling you selling you Apple stuff. Um, I think that's a model. Obviously, every brand cannot do that, but every brand can build. You know, if you look at most consumer brands here today, they are building DTC capability. Direct to consumer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, every day. Uh, you know, because some consumers, uh, maybe not a lot today, but some consumers want to buy things direct and, and they're going to. So so I think, you know, when I think about that, one of the brands that, that I like to look at is Harry's, 
right? So, so Harry's uh, razors, uh, and I'm a Harry's user. I've been a Harry's subscriber for, I don't know, five years, right? Uh, but I still interact with Harry's, you know, Harry's is in my, my Harris Teeter, which is a, a Kroger banner here. Um, so I still interact with them there. Uh, I still see them there. I'm still connected to them there. And then I got, I bought, uh, uh, oh, I bought a, a, a coat the other day for a, a climb that I'm doing. And I got all this stuff, you know, kind of those rewards after, and it was Harry's. So, so I think it's thinking about different ways to connect, but ultimately I think Harry's wants to capture me, uh, as a new shopper, um, wherever I may be. And, and then, migrate me to its franchise. And, and I think you're going to see that brand model happen a lot, uh, you, you know, going forward. And, brand, and brands are going to have to get expertise at that. And there's all kinds of ways that they can do that. You know, are they the fulfiller? Do they work with, you know, whatever. But ultimately, they want to know what Nike knows about me. I buy, unless I'm buying collectibles, um, I'm buying all of my Nikes from Nike, Right. And uh, I was in the gym today. I don't know if it was this program, but uh, on my on my watch uh, popped a twenty percent weekend sale for Nike. You know, which uh, I have um, again. They are very. What I notice about Nike, it is it is very good at kind of knowing what my purchase pattern is. You know, I buy a new pair of Nikes. You know, functional Nikes every six months right was that was that through near field communication no or was uh, it just a pop-up from a, it, it was SMS just, it was, just a, it was it was attentive or or one of the, the sorry it, it was just it was just a uh it was a text um so ad. they didn't know you were in the gym well i'm wondering about that right because um apple knows i'm in the gym right Sure. And Google knows I'm in the gym. You know, Google, I use Google, you know, Google Maps and, and Apple. I mean, I, I wondered, it, it's it's funny. It, it, it was just weird that it popped up. It, it could have just been a coincidence. But, yeah. you know, I, I'm a, I'm a like marketer. Those, yeah, so funny I'm like, things that happen. I, I'm like, well, that, and it just, it only, it popped up on my watch, right? And, and so I'm like, huh, I, if that was the case, that was pretty well done, you know? Uh, uh, I, 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 it probably was not, but it could be. I mean, all the technology exists to do that. And so, in terms of all the technologies you you mentioned in the book, so many of them, of course, uh, the one that stand out probably the most, as far as my reading of your book is concerned, is voice. Mm -hmm. What, uh, what would, what advice would you have for brand marketers today in looking at the slew of technologies that are out there? Where should they be spending their time and money in terms of developing the tech after you develop the right people, as Macmillan might say? Are you, are you talking about voice shopping and voice marketing? Well, yeah, anything, there's so many technologies out there, drones yeah. and AI and AR and yeah, Such. I don't know, but I, I am fascinated with um, with voice and you know with spoken interaction, you know, with 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 brands and and with with marketing. Uh, there's a couple cool companies out there. There's a, a company called Blue AI that does a whole um, series of uh, of integrated voice interaction for Alexa for for brands. 
you know, mm-hmm. and, and I think as we get um, as a whole more comfortable talking to our machines um, and interacting with machines on voice, I mean, vo- voice marketing is something to figure out. It's very much in its infancy today, but it's coming, right? You, you know, um, we have a, uh, you know, a, an echo um, screen uh, product on our, our kitchen counter and you know, it it recognizes when I come down to make coffee and starts telling me about things going on in the world and products and things like that. You know, so so imagine you you can imagine a day where I'm like, hey, you know, um, hey, uh, you know, Alexa, does the, you know Nike have any new products I should be aware of or whatever? But so if I but if I'm a brand, you, you, there's a startling data point you you write about, which is that 90 percent of voice shopping in the U.S. is owned by Amazon and Google. So as a brand, you're mm-hmm. basically going to have to pay to play, presumably, some mm-hmm. sort of search, oral search mechanisms. Uh, you're going to need to get ramped up on how to do that well, like whatever it is, vocal search engine optimization. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is. There's there's a um, uh, there, there's a wonderful. Um, uh, there's a there's a wonderful uh, expert expert on this this uh, topic called named Emily Bender. Uh, you should have her on your show. You would you would like, but she has a a voice um, uh, series that she does. So you 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 subscribe to her series, and it has a short you know marketing um, daily uh, uh, piece that she does. Yeah, I think today those are the crunch points, but but obviously as the space grows, um, you know, today's Elon's first day at Twitter. So uh, I imagine he'll think about that a little bit, right? That's a, mm-hmm. a, a, well, he a, said he wants to become the everywhere platform or the everything platform, sort of sounded like Amazon. Yeah, well, I think he's thinking about, um, I think he's looking at uh, platforms like WhatsApp, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, WeChat, that are kind of ubiquitous, you know, uh, uh, shopping. Tencent is anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Shopping, uh, you, you know, whatever. So super apps, you know, we don't, we don't really have one of those in the United States today hmm. um, because we just don't use them that way. You know, China developed a very different pattern than we did. But I think that just, because uh, I mean, I know this point, yeah. one thing they did differently in China is that they, they start with a credit card. Yeah. So, so Where, that, that, whereas we start everything with an email. Sure. Sure. So it's a different, but, but again, one of our premises in the book is, is payment product and, 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 uh, uh, and, and um, uh, media. So everything combined. And, and that's what, you, you know, I see, you see a lot of things going there. I think um, Apple, I think has made, Apple very quietly made huge inroads into into becoming the transactional retailer of choice for a lot of folks. So when I, you know, if I buy, I was just talking about this with some of the marketers at at Osnap. Um, uh, If I buy a pair of Nikes from an Instagram post, Nike's really good at targeting me. Uh, I like a shoe of theirs. Uh, called uh, called the 270, and and I have it in four or five colorways. And when they have interesting colorways, I buy another one because I just like them. Um, they'll target me that with an Instagram ad, and I can buy it directly in the ad. 
and my payment system in in that in that case is my um, Apple Pay, and it's a shopper enable. It's a seamless shopper enablement piece because I don't even have to think about it. I mean, I've I've got a pair of shoes on the way to my house, and you know, less than a minute, and I didn't have to do anything, right? And I, so think about it, in that case, Apple's the transactor, right? And, and Apple's getting some pretty good data in that, in that stream as well. So, you know, yeah, it sure. the, the uh, share of you, wallet, right? You, you saw Facebook's uh, uh, numbers or their, their numbers this week. Uh, they, they lost 20% of their value this week um, as well when they announced. I think Apple has strategically targeted disintermediating Facebook's um, ad business. And I think it's doing it by adding the transactional component. To your point, start with a credit card. It, it's added, anybody who has an iPhone has that capability, you know, with that, if they have Apple Pay set up, which most- I, And the a few people do have the iPhone. John. A couple of people have an iPhone, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I we didn't even get into the uh, more apocalyptic version of the economy, economy and how that will also impact uh, different retailers and, and consumer behaviors. There's a lot to dissect and go on. How can anybody get in touch with you, uh, hire you for your retail sav ah. savviness, uh, and of course, read your book? Sure. Uh, I am uh, Katahdin on almost everything. K and, what, and Katahdin, that's a mountain, isn't it? You're a climber, yeah. I guess. Katahdin is a big mountain in, um, uh, in Maine. Uh, it's the terminus point of the Appalachian Trail and something I climb once a year, every other year, something like that, uh, when I can get up there and, and do it. Um, it's just a neat place. Uh, it, it's, it's a place that means a lot to me, but my company is, is Katahdin Consulting. And um, I, I work hand in hand with Ted on, on lots of projects and, and various things. Um, spending a lot of time these days with, with DTC, I've, I've kind of reawakened my, my love for product uh, and brand. And, and to your point, uh, thinking about how do I build relationships with consumers? How do we have a brand voice that's that's relevant? Uh, uh, OSNAP is a fun place to spend some of my time doing that today. Um, but yeah, that's that's the best way. And, I, and I'm on LinkedIn, obviously, or wherever. I'm easy to find. <laughs> I'll, I will put all, despite oh. having a name that doesn't exactly stand out, John, I would say you do stand out. <laughs> Thank uh, you. So bravo for that. A lot of uh, good SEO, personal branding. Katahdin, uh, we will put all that into the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on. Good luck with everything. And uh, a reminder to everybody, go get Retail Relevancy, how brands and retailers will connect in a post-physical world. Came out end of 2021, so it should still be fresh. Thank you. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show and would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Minterdial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on Minterdial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
Hi, my name is Sara, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.